We continue on uh, this morning. Actually, we finish our journey through relationships. And this morning, we're going to hit um, the relationships in our neighborhood. Next week, you're going to see the stage a little bit different. You're going to see the front of your bulletin cover a little bit different. And we are going to move into a series of 10 weeks on the Ten Commandments. Um, and it's sort of, we're, we're calling it God's Roadmap. Um, if we're talking about a journey, then we need a way uh, for us to understand that journey. And obviously having a roadmap is important. And the Ten Commandments are a wonderful roadmap for that. And um, what I want you to anticipate a little bit is I know that many of us have heard the commandments for years, especially if you were raised um, with the King James Version with thou shalt not, correct? I mean, that's thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, all those thou shalt not, which is appropriate. That's what Scripture says. That's what Scripture teaches about the commandments. But um, I want to come at a little bit of differently. Maybe some of you have heard um, messages to this effect. It says thou shalt not, which is appropriate, but what does then that mean that we should do? And so we're going to talk about, in light of the commandments, what we should do and how we move towards those things that are not thou shalt not, but thou shalt. So that'll be for 10 weeks. That'll take us through the summer. And just so you are also aware, Pretty soon, you're going to start to see some more faces around here in the midst of this because we have our interns coming on board. They're actually going to be on the ground this week. And one of them, named Kyle Bleeker, is a um, student at Fuller Seminary, and he is in the process of learning what it means to be a preacher. He's a good friend of mine, a dear friend, and I'm actually going to be mentoring him through what it means to preach a message. And um, I, I love you all. You've been very gracious to me. And I ask that when he comes and he is learning how to preach, that you be gracious to him. He has much to offer, some good things that I think he can share. And I'll try to make sure that um, he doesn't do, uh, doesn't do any damage that I have to repair. We already have that with Pastor Will and Nick. So, you know, we don't need any more of that. Just kidding, Will. Come on. So we're entering into a, sort of a, a neat season here at the river, and I want to encourage you not only to be in prayer, um, but I also want you to encourage you even more. Actually, no, I want to take a second. This is important. Talked about this as staff this week. We have interns coming on board. There's two ways that we can approach these folks. We can accept them, and I believe that all of you probably will accept them. You're going to be like, hey, we have interns in church. Inter- we have interns in church. Okay, that's good. And that's one way that we can do it. And I've been an intern that's been accepted into a church. Okay. There's another way to have an intern in your church, and that is by embracing them. It's a whole different mindset. These are people who are coming to learn from us and learn with us and to work with us. And for all of us to understand that we have an opportunity in the lives of these five young people to embrace them, they're our interns. These are our folks. And if they're our folks, then we're going to treat them like we treat anyone else who's our folks. We're going to love them. We're going to encourage them. We're going to, you know, be a part of their lives in some way, shape, or form. Some of them may have needs that you can help with, even if it's a meal or just encouragement or a little note. There's a difference between accepting and embracing, and I would very much appreciate 
if we would be an embracing church for interns. Is that a fair request? I think that's a fair request. All right, so let's go into this coming season with that sort of mindset. I would appreciate that. We're going to talk about the journey through our neighborhood, the journey in our neighborhood, the relationships within our neighborhood this morning. We're going to read from Mark 2, and as we get ready to do that, let's pray for God's blessing on our time together. Father, may you be blessed through how we receive your word. May you be glorified through how we receive your word. It is your lamp to our path, a light to our feet. Lord, may we uh, pursue it as such this morning. May we be reminded that there is something here for us as your people. Truth, there's good news. And the good news is that you embrace us and now you call us to be um, embracing of others. I pray, O oh God, through your spirit and because of the work of Jesus Christ that our hearts are moved, changed even, to see the world around us a little differently and to grow towards it, Father, with um, a purpose and a plan uh, that is to do your will in the lives of especially those who don't know you around us. We might be an encouragement to them. We might be truth to them. We might, Lord, as you are to us, be light and salt that uh, shows us um, what true life, true joy, uh, what, a, what a true um, experience of this world is about. Father, give us that wisdom. Do your work in us today. Pray these things in Christ. Amen. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Once again... Jesus went out beside the lake, and this is uh, the Sea of Galilee. Picture this, uh, if you're thinking about a lake that's just, it's about maybe six, seven miles across, you can see the other side, it's surrounded by hills all the way around, lots of little towns dot the outside of the Sea of Galilee, um, so it's a, it's a pretty good-sized lake. In fact, it's so, such a good size that when storms come, they can be pretty violent storms, so that's... Uh, that's this picture that you get. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but Sinners. You'll notice that sinners is the only one not in quotation. I want you to think about celebrations in your life. Who do you invite to your parties? If you have a graduation in your family, if you have a, a wedding, if you have a um, birthday, who do you invite? your parties. Um, I know for me, again, oftentimes, a reminder, when I preach, I'm preaching in a mirror because this is for me, and this one especially is for me, 
in light of even how I host my parties. I invite my closest friends. Appropriate, of course. Um, But as I think who my closest friends are, I would say that 95% of them are members or connected with the river. These are believers. These are people who know Jesus. And that's a good thing. I mean, I like you people. I hope you like me. And for us to spend time together in parties is appropriate. I mean, that's what you do. You spend time with people that you like and that you enjoy spending time with. But I think it's important in light of this morning's text to think about how we engage in that sort of activity. Because I think what happens oftentimes is that we can create around ourselves a little bit of a shell. And it's a shell that is, um, we'll call it a safe shell. We'll call it a protected shell, a sheltered shell. It's a Christian shell. Nice little Christian shell that some of us live in. I want you to think through how many friends you have who are not believers. How many friends that you invite to your parties? How many people that you spend significant time with who are not believers? And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, but I don't want to be polluted. The word says, God's word says, um, do, not have, do, not, do not have anything to do with things of this world. Do not have anything to do with, with, with sinful things. And I'm fearful that if I spend time with non-Christians, then I'm going to be exposed to that. And that's fair, but only to a point. And I think this morning's text, where we see Levi behaving in some certain fashions, and then Jesus' response to his behavior is really helpful for us to understand how to engage with non-Christians, with, with people around us, with our neighbors in such a way that Jesus is glorified, that his light is shown, that salt is sprinkled in our neighborhood and in our community in such a former fashion that Christ can even, if it be his will, save and redeem and change and transform the life of people that we invite to our parties. It's important for us to think about that. And as we look at our text, we see one picture of how a group of people think this is how we're supposed to deal with this. Look at the Pharisees. Look at what they say in the text. They qualify these people that Jesus and Levi and his disciple, Jesus' disciples, are spending time with as tax collectors and sinners. And I don't know if you have teenage kids, they do this all the time. Well, they used to. I don't think it's cool anymore, but it used to be like sinners, and they have that in the text three different times, sinners. And the Pharisees were qualifying these people as unworthy of Jesus spending time with. In fact, they questioned it. And they, that was because they were known for their holiness and their separation from people of this world. They wouldn't associate with these kind of people because there was a qualifier in the Jewish culture that if you spent time with people who were sinners, you became unclean. 
And they certainly didn't want to become unclean because becoming unclean meant that you were not allowed until you'd gone through a time of purification to enter into the temple in order to go and fulfill your duties of worship. You couldn't do that if you were unclean, and they knew that that was an important part of their life as a Jew, and especially as a Pharisee, so they didn't want to risk that even remotely. So you just simply don't associate with tax collectors and sinners. Now it seems as we look at the text that their intention is to only associate and seek relationship with people like themselves, those who have chosen to live a righteous, God-fearing life. And if we think about that, it seems logical. Because people who are righteous and God-fearing can help you grow in becoming righteous and God-fearing, right? Those are people that can be an encouragement to your faith. There are people that can pray for you. There are people that can hold you accountable. There are people that can encourage you. There are people that can teach you things about the word and about what it means to express God's word with your lifestyle. And so for the Pharisees, on one hand, to have that mindset, I think is natural for a follower of Jesus Christ because a person who loves Jesus, or in their case, they loved God, they didn't love Jesus, but who person who loved God, their desire was to grow, and they would do the things that would help them grow, and stay away from those things that would not help them grow, and being around tax collectors and sinners wouldn't help them grow in their minds. So it's a natural thing that these guys are doing. It's a natural sort of, I think it's something that we often even can move towards. But Jesus confronts that. And Jesus challenges that notion. And in his confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus is making it clear that such a view of relationships is problematic. And that's certainly not how he intends to engage in his ministry. Jesus is not at all seeking to put a shell around himself and his disciples. And, of course, we can say, well, Jesus was an evangelist. Jesus was the Messiah. He had to broadcast the message to the world that he was the Son of God. And so he had to be in that world of sinners and tax collectors. We don't. Really? Don't we? If I remember the text, it says, go into all the world and preach my gospel to every creature. It says, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It says, go. 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 And the funny part is that when we think about the word go in terms of evangelism or sharing the gospel or speaking the good news, we think China. We think Africa. We think go means somewhere else. 
And I think if that's the way we think about it, then we don't realize that sometimes when Jesus says, go to us, it means go into your driveway. Go to your living room. Go to the ball field. Go to your workplace. Go to your school. Preach my gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The commission, the great commission, is worldwide. No question. China included, Afghanistan included, Africa included, no question. But so is Highland Avenue Redlands. So is Silver Cup Court Redlands. So is your address, Yukaipa, Kalamesa, Highland, Colton, doesn't matter. The Great Commission is that the gospel goes out everywhere, and sometimes everywhere is certainly a stone's throw away. You can be a missionary in your neighborhood. You can be a missionary in your workplace. You can even be a missionary in your own family. Our desire to grow in Christ through putting away worldly things, worldly behavior, worldly relationships, that's appropriate. That's part of growth, but that's only on some levels. Scripture challenges us to think that through, especially in how we in this Reformed tradition that this church is a part of, see the world around us. Bill Beerling is the king of this. He will say that all of creation is under the authority. Every square inch is part of the grandeur of God. And he's absolutely correct. It's Kuyperian, Abraham Kuyper. You can do your research, go do a Wikipedia on him, you'll learn a lot. But it's the idea that everywhere that we see, anything we can grasp, anything we can surf on the web, anything that we can participate in is a part of God's glory in his creation and how he continues to sustain his creation. And he calls us as believers to be engaged in every part of it, not simply seeking to protect ourselves, this idea of pietism, a safety zone, a place where we may make it safe for us to not be polluted by the world, but instead world engagement. Engagement in such a fashion that when we walk in, we bring the light of Jesus into the darkness of whatever it is that we're participating in. And this includes our neighborhoods, our workspaces, wherever it is that we're going. We come as light bearers into all of creation and our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to engage in all of creation, as the commandment says, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so for us to say, but I don't want to go there. I'm scared. That's, I'm fearful. I don't want to do that because that will pollute me. That, will, that may, I mean, if I hang out with people who drink, I might be compelled to drink. You're right. You might be. But the command still says be engaged in such a way that you so show Jesus. And there's ways that we can engage with difficult landscapes, difficult people groups, difficult neighborhoods, whatever it is, in such a form or fashion that we're not polluted. But in fact, perhaps we're bringing the only light 
that will come to that particular space. If we are salt and light to the world, we have to recognize that there needs to be some level of engagement with those around us who don't know Jesus. In fact, it's a command. There has to be on some level this compulsion in us to see and to know that within 150 yards of where we are sitting right this second, there are people who are lost in their sin. There are people who don't know Jesus Christ. There are people who do not even have a way to know Jesus unless we take seriously the responsibility to go and preach the gospel to every corner of creation. There are people within 150 yards of where you eat your breakfast every morning. There are people within 50 yards of where you work every day. There are people who are three yards away in the desk you sit in or the workspace that you're a part of who don't know the gospel of Jesus. And part of Jesus' call to us because he's redeemed us from our sins is him saying to us now, I've given to you the hope of salvation. Be a part of my work in bringing it to the next person in line. Be obedient. And do so with thanksgiving for what I've done for you. And the problem that we have, especially in the Reformed tradition, is that we haven't done this very well sometimes. There's a couple spaces, a couple times in our history, we were incredibly poor at this. I want to bring your attention to a little city called Chicago, 1950s and 60s. If you don't know the history of Chicago and the Christian Reformed Church in the 1950s and 60s, I'm going to boil it down to you. It's a quick history, and it's also not a complete history, so if you want to know more, you should dig deeper. There were a number of Christian Reformed and Reformed churches in South Chicago. A number of them, like seven, eight, nine, ten churches. And they were very active churches in their neighborhoods, which, was a, which were white neighborhoods. They were multicultural neighborhoods, and there was a lot of multicultural divisions. Usually it was between like Eastern European groups, Poles, um, Russians, Slavs, different groups like that. But there were German enclaves, there were Dutch enclaves, lots of different stuff. And there was some engagement with the neighborhood around these churches, but they were still relatively pietistic, relatively safe. They had their church, they had their Christian schools, and it was a pretty limited um, view sort of of the, the kingdom of God in their neighborhoods. But then, of course, things started to change. You had... African Americans begin to move into these neighborhoods because it was affordable housing. There's a phrase that we get from that particular time in our history. It's called white flight. And the idea was 
that many of these churches and neighborhoods that were situated in neighborhoods where African Americans were moving in got scared. Yes, they were driving down housing prices. There's a lot to that conversation. I don't want to oversimplify. But the gist of it was is that there was this fear of engaging in ministry in the neighborhood. And so what did you do when you got scared? You left. One of the reasons why Chicago suburbs spread it out as much as they did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was because of that white flight. So many places where Christian Reformed churches were in the 50s, 60s, and 70s no longer have Christian Reformed churches. In fact, if you look at the area of South Chicago that was very heavily populated with Christian Reformed churches, there's really only two or three left. Most of them moved out to the suburbs. And there's a lament on the part of this generation for what happened, because that was not truly kingdom living. But it's sort of the tradition that we can have with this. We see things around us that bring us fear as either believers or family protectors or whatever it is. And we can do one of two things. We can move towards it, or we can flee from it. We can protect ourselves from it. We can create a shell. And when we see, again, from the text, what Jesus did through Levi's work, we have to wonder if fleeing is at all even an option. Because it seems to me that as we look back at the text of Scripture, Jesus knew exactly what was going on here. And he engaged in life with tax collectors and sinners in such a form or fashion that he brought the the, the hope that he brings into their dinner time. Now you need to notice that we're not talking about evangelistic tent meeting. We're not talking about inviting a neighbor to a Bible study. We're not talking about Jesus saying, I will be at such and such a time speaking my wisdom about God's word in Levi's house on Tuesday evening. Levi said, come to dinner. Pretty simple stuff. Come to dinner. Sit and eat. Something that all of us do. Have food and conversation. Oh yeah, and Jesus is going to be there. What a perfect reminder to us that it's not about having your ducks in a row when it comes to evangelistic work. Sometimes it's about putting the burgers on. I have people who've said to me, I'm I'm scared to talk about Jesus because I, I don't even know what to say. You know what you say? You say, medium or well done. That's where you start. And then after that, you see, I see, what Jesus does through us. You'll notice that Jesus knew Levi's status when he called him. He knew that Levi was a tax collector. Why? How do we know that he knew Levi was a tax collector? Because he's in the tax collector booth. 
If you go to a bakery and you talk to somebody who's there who's wearing a white smock, you know he's the baker. If you talk to somebody who's wearing a police uniform, a gun and a baton, you know it's a policeman. If you talk to somebody in the tax collector's booth with a purse hanging from his belt, he's the tax collector. Jesus knew who Levi was, still made the call to him, and then somehow or other, maybe it was Jesus making a request. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Jesus somehow ends up in his, in his house for dinner. Maybe Jesus said, hey, I'm hungry. Have you got any burgers? And if you got enough, and if you don't have enough, let me know. I'll pray over them. We'll be good. If you invite your friends, let's sit down and eat food and talk. You begin to wonder if Jesus sort of planned this well, I know he's God. It's not sort of. He did. This was an intentional moment of showing the Pharisees what it meant to be a fully formed follower of God. See, they didn't want to associate with people who were sinners because those sinners would stop them from growing. But Jesus is instead saying them to them here, When you engage in this work, you end up growing. You end up maturing. You end up seeing more of me at work than you would any other way. And then you'll also notice that Jesus is the one who engages in the healing of Levi's friends. And his healing doesn't come with the story of a radical life shift that we know of. We don't hear of somebody by the end of the meal having tears running down their face saying, I need to follow Jesus. But you can bet Jesus is sitting there having dinner and somebody says to him, hey, Jesus, what do you do? I'm a fisherman, what do you do? Or I'm a prostitute, what do you do? I'm here to save the world. I'm sure that somehow or other during that meal, there was conversation that impacted the life of these tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus simply did that through his presence and whatever came his way. Levi just set up the environment. He became the planner and said, how can we do this? And I think that's the same call for us. Because the calling that we need to understand for our lives is that you and I all live in spaces of darkness. Now, I know you're saying, well, all everyone in my home is a believer. Okay, and I have a couple neighbors, and those neighbors are believers. Okay, but there's other people who are not. And there's people who you do know who are not, there's people that you work with who are not believers. For me right now, one of the, there's people that I'm on the bleachers with who are not believers. That's my neighborhood where Jesus calls me to be salt and light right now. And the question for all of us is, where is the darkness in your neighborhood that God has called you to be salt and light to? And for us to see all of these types of things, our schools, our families, sports teams, arts groups, if you're a part, if you're a part of, of uh, 
I don't know, an exercise group or a walking group or a reading group or you're part of a, a group of folks who go out in the desert and you go riding or whatever it is. Hiking groups. These are all spaces that can be used as Levi dining rooms where we simply invite people to be a part of a, a, a meal or a conversation or an activity where we're not sitting down and saying, let us turn to Ecclesiastes 4 and thus study God's word together. We instead are sitting down and saying, how's your life? What do you do? How are your kids? How's your folks? And as we do so, we do so intentionally, allowing Jesus to do the work. Because you never know how it's going to happen. You never know how it's going to occur. You, you may think, well, okay, I'm in this space, and uh, we've, we we we. How are they supposed to know? And I'm too scared to tell them about Jesus. You know what you do? You tell them about your church. I think this is a good church. And if you say, yeah, I go to church. I go to the river. Some good people there. We did some fun stuff together. Pastor's a little nuts, but that's all good. Whatever it is. Or you begin to say, well, I was praying the other day about my kids or about my, my parents. and You intentionally bring in things of faith. You're not trying to hit anyone over the head. You're not trying to get this club of Jesus and knock somebody over the head because you want them to come to you. But they at least can know that you're a person of faith who trusts Jesus. Then let's see where the conversation goes. You never know how this is going to work. I am constantly surprised. I have the in, by the way. I think I've said this before. People ask me what I do. I'm a pastor. That's a conversation ender in a moment, by the way. If I want to kill a conversation, oh, I'm a pastor who loves Jesus. Done. But oftentimes what happens is then because I've mentioned that faith is a part of my life, somehow or other it comes up later on. A little question. A little, people want to know something because they know that I know Jesus or that I'm a person of faith. And all of a sudden the door opens. And you're surprised because you didn't expect it to come from there. Sometime I could, t- I could tell you the stories that have happened just through, like I said, baseball, the bleacher stuff softball with my kids there have been wacky doors that have opened up and i'm just sort of sitting sitting there sometimes going how in the world did we get here i'll tell you how because jesus moves and you never know how he's going to use you when we understand and allow these relationships to be opportunities to share simply about our life in christ we give opportunity for Christ to do work through us. And there's some of you who are thinking, but I'm older. I don't have dinner parties anymore. You do have spaces. You have spaces that are opportunities for you to share Jesus. Maybe it's in, you know, and maybe, maybe if you don't have one, maybe you begin to move towards one. Maybe you need to become part of a book group 
down at the library. Maybe you need to become a part of a car club because you're a car person. Or maybe you need to become part of a knitting group because you're a knitting person. Or maybe you need to be part of a, I don't know, skydiving group because you're a skydiving person. Find a space where God can create that neighborhood so that you have opportunity out of a response of thanksgiving for what he has done for you in Jesus Christ to be able to engage in being Levi to a community in order to see what God can do through you. It's important for us to think that way because I can, I can tell you that like the Pharisees, the Pharisees missed out on a huge growth opportunity in their faith. Having these sorts of conversations with people grows your faith in a way that you can never imagine. Talk to a teacher sometime. You want to ask a teacher how for them to best learn a concept in their subject matter that they don't understand? Teach it. Teach it to a group of students in a way that you have to understand exactly what you're teaching. And then you will learn more. If you want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus and have a faith life, teach what it means to follow Jesus and have a faith life to a person who doesn't know anything about it. Because all of a sudden, they're going to ask you questions. And they're going to say things to you that you're like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to have to figure that out. And then I get the phone call. Great. Then I forward it to Pastor Will. And then he forwards it to Pastor Bill, and Pastor Bill gives it to me. It's a fun game we play. But ultimately, for us to understand that when we engage in sharing the good news, out of obedience to the great commandment, the great commission, when we, out of obedience, respond to that great commission by teaching people about who Jesus is with our lives and as they ask questions with our words, we give opportunity for ourselves to grow in ways that we can't think of or imagine. As that happens, our faith and life grows because we are often surprised by how the Spirit works to bring people to Jesus. Sometimes you don't even know it, but you're teaching people about Jesus. Sometimes you don't even know it. You're speaking to people about Jesus. And God be praised for that because he's God and we're not. And through Christ, he empowers us through his spirit to do things that we can't even think of or imagine. So for the, ch- the challenge becomes for us to think through ways that we can do this even more intentionally. We recently had a conversation in staff. It was sort of um, spurred on by um, a thought that Joel had and that sort of got some energy from the rest of the staff. We've been thinking about neighborhood engagement um, in a number of different ways. And I want you to think along with me about ways that you can be a part of that work. See, one of the things that we do is if we have a party, we have it in our backyard, right? Because we don't want to bother the neighbors too much with our party because people are coming to our home and we have a party and we have it enclosed in our backyard oftentimes. I know that's how I operate. Maybe you don't. Maybe your house is set up different, whatever. 
maybe you just have a balcony or you have, don't have anything and you just do your parties your way. I want you to think along with me about ways that we could have Jesus show up in our front yard. Because the great thing about having Jesus show up in our front yard is that people in our neighborhood are going to see it. In fact, people in our neighborhood may even engage in it. Joel sort of challenged us. Recently, there was a, a group of people within the church who basically just hosted a barbecue. One of the guys had a grill that he had on his front driveway, and he had, um, they had some other food there, and they had a couple games set up for their kids, and they were outside. And of course, they saw their neighbors. And as they saw their neighbors, they said to their neighbors, hey, grill's hot. You got any things that you want to grill? You can come over and hang out with us. Kids are playing. Real easy going. Bring some food. And what happens is they bring food. And they sit and they talk. And unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, depending on your perspective, they sometimes bring a cooler of beer or some other things maybe that we would think to ourselves. Maybe that's not how we would celebrate. We don't believe that God has called us that way. But you know what? You at least have a lawn chair sitting right beside another person in a lawn chair that you can talk. And the result of that was about a three or four hour long cul-de-sac party for this family that ended up to have about four or five different families involved. And now they know each other a whole lot better. And now when they drive into the neighborhood, instead of booking into their garage and closing their garage door because they don't know each other, they come out and they talk and they find out more about what's going on with their kids, what's going on with your kids, what has worked. But then Joel really challenged us to think even more intentionally. See, what would it mean if you and I, and the church could help with this, we have some resources, we might be able to assist if you needed to do some rentals. What would happen if you were to think through for your family renting one of those evil, evil, evil things called bounce houses and putting it in your front yard? Those things drive me nuts, but I know kids love them. But you put it in your front yard, you got a grill set up a ways away from it with food, and you say, guess what? We got a bounce house. Bring your kids, let's have some fun, and sit here for a while. Or what would it mean for us to get one of those nice inflatable screens that we can project a movie on one night? And of course, we'll be done by 10 o'clock so we don't bother our neighbors and they call the cops on us. But at the very least, we're going to think through what it means for us to allow the neighborhood together to engage in life. And the funny part is that if we're willing to do stuff like that, it's just the beginning. That's the entryway. That's the start. But I want to challenge you to start and maybe that's not your thing maybe that's not how you're going to do things fine pray through ways that god can use you to show the light and the love of jesus christ to your neighbors in some way where it's simply about having a relationship that revolves around something fun or easygoing because you and i never know what Christ can do through us. Who knows? Perhaps one of the Pharisees, we don't know, perhaps one of the Pharisees at Levi's party was Paul. 
Perhaps one of the people that was eating at the dinner was Mary Magdalene. What Levi did allowed the kingdom to grow. And for us to be willing, to be ready, to be thankful enough to Jesus to show through how we engage in our neighborhood, uh, we want to see him at work. And we're willing to take a risk, do some scary things in order to see him work through us. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for the example that we have in Levi, a person who was on the fringe of life in many ways in that he was friends with a whole lot of non-Christians. We thank you, Father, that he brought those people into contact with you. And that's our calling too, Lord, that we are willing, that we engage in life together in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workspace, on the teams that we're a part of, in the groups that we're a part of, in such a form or fashion, Lord, that you can use us. You can use us to grow your kingdom. You can use us to, as you've shown us in Jesus Christ, you you can use us to be a part of eternal work saving the hearts and the lives of people that we know, people that we see every day, maybe driving in and out of our neighborhood. You can use us to be a part of changing their eternities forever. May we, Lord, be willing. And when we are willing, Lord, may we be faithful and following the call that you put on us, moving towards it, Lord, with a, a desire to share who you are the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.